without looking at or thinking about the title of the message, because this isn't the answer I'm looking for, finish this sentence with the first word that naturally comes to mind. You are what you eat. I heard it. You are what you eat. Most people would answer that with the word eat because that's such a common saying in our society. You are what you eat. But Scripture has a different perspective. Turn with me, please, to the book of Philippians chapter 4 as we turn our attention to the study of God's Word and follow along as I read verses 4 through 8, though we've covered 4, 5, 6, and 7 in some detail. We'll only be concentrating on verse 8 in this message, but we'll begin reading in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness or your forbearance or your graciousness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This section of the letter to the Philippians has been called by some the key to mental health. That is because of the focus or the topics that are addressed in those few verses. Verse 7 refers to the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That's what people want in life. They want peace of mind. This section tells us that peace of mind comes to those who are able to rejoice in the Lord always, those who develop a gracious, forbearing personality, those who are confident in the presence of God, those who cast their care upon the Lord in prayer, and those who develop a thankful attitude. In this message, we add another to the list, those who think the right way. I'm sure you've heard the slogan, you are what you eat. That's not really true. Look at what Jesus had to say about that in Matthew chapter 15. Go back to the first gospel account, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 15, and we'll begin reading in verse 10. Matthew tells us, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed 
hands does not defile a man. And notice the first item on the list there in verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. So here Jesus basically says you are not what you eat. Some people would change that statement. They would say, no, you are not what you eat. You you are what you wear. You know, clothes make the man. You are what you wear. That's not true either. Do you remember what God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7? The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So you are not what you wear. You are not what you eat, and you are not what you wear. Let me mention another one. You are not what you think you are. In Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In other words, we all have a natural tendency to be biased when we try to view ourselves. We have a tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So you are not necessarily what you think you are. So you are not what you eat. You are not what you wear. You are not what you think you are. But you are what you think. Proverbs 23, 7, not in all translations. It's a very unique verse. But in some versions, Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You are what you think. That's scary when you realize that 85% of the people don't think, 10% think they think, and only 5% think. Wow, you are what you think. That's why we are supposed to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ according to 2 Corinthians 10.5. I'm sure you've heard the saying, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. You are what you think. By the way, that's why it's so important to have sound doctrine, solid theology. Some people downplay the importance of doctrine as being irrelevant. They say, well, you know, don't give me all that doctrine and theology. I want something practical. But beloved, listen, doctrine and theology are relevant because what you think about God affects the way you live life. How you view God. So many of people's problems in life stem from a wrong view of God. I mean, think about it. If you view God as unloving, you will suffer from insecurity or bitterness. If you view God as harsh, if you view God as unfair, if you view, just, you have a wrong view of God, and it has a major impact on your life. You say, well, it's just a thought. Yeah, but it's a thought that leads to actions and emotions and, and all sorts of wrong perspectives. Tim LaHaye, in his book, The Battle for the Mind, has written this, quote, Ever since God first spoke to Adam and Eve, explaining to them how to think so they would know how to live successful and happy lives, there has been a consistent battle over who will control the thought processes of man's mind, man or God. Sooner or later, every human being makes that decision, and the result is his philosophy of life. Until this generation, parents were the most influential force in helping a child formulate his philosophy. That is no longer true. Modern technology has found ingenious ways to assault the mind of man and child with incredibly beautiful sounds, colors, and visual imagery. 
Millions of parents have already lost their children's minds to rock stars, atheistic humanistic educators, sensual entertainers, and a host of other anti-God, amoral, anti-man influences. Since you are what you think, your thought processes today are largely the result of the input that has come to your mind via your eyes and ears. If you are not careful, you will lose the battle for control of your mind and the minds of your children. Later in that same book, he makes this great insight. Feelings are not always spontaneous. To control them, you must first control your mind. That's interesting in light of the fact that Christianity today, and I'm talking about Christianity in the broadest sense of the term. Christianity today has such a tremendous emphasis on feelings and emotions. In fact, Christianity, the the face of Christianity around the world, this may surprise you uh, to, to know this, but the face of Christianity around the world is largely the charismatic movement. That is what people think Christianity is if you go to countries all around the world. And if you know anything about charismatic theology, it is largely emotional and very minimally content, doctrine, theology. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has accurately characterized our society when he wrote this, quote, Reason is being distrusted and set on one side. Following D.H. Lawrence, many are saying that our troubles are due to the fact that we have overdeveloped our cerebrum. We must listen more to our blood and go back to nature, they say. And so turning against intellectualism and deliberately espousing the creed of irrationality, they yield themselves to the desire for experience and place sensation above understanding. Their their motto is, what matters is feeling and enjoyment, not thought. Pure thought leads nowhere. End quote. That is a very common perspective under the umbrella of Christianity today. I'm reminded of what God said through the prophet Hosea, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. God knows that one of, now I'm not saying the only, I don't want to, I don't, in this message, I don't want to reduce the Christian life down to intellectualism or the, the mind, but God knows that one of the keys to spiritual stability is learning to think the right way. Look at Romans chapter 12, which we heard earlier in the service, very key passage of scripture. Romans chapter 12. verse 1 I beseech you therefore I urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service or your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now we tend to be real familiar with the first part of that verse, but we often stop before we are told how to pull it off. Verse 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in fact, the, the play on words that Paul uses here is fascinating. He says, do not be conformed to this world. And he uses a Greek term which means to be squeezed from the outside in. Instead, be transformed. It's the Greek word metamorphaomai. And immediately you recognize our English term metamorphosis. The caterpillar going into a cocoon and being transformed from the inside out. And it comes out a beautiful butterfly. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds and thinking process are key for spiritual growth. 
To prepare for this message, I read a fascinating book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Neil Postman was a professor of communication arts and sciences at New York University. The book is about the shift that has taken place in American culture from what he calls the age of typography to the age of television. Neil Postman, as far as I know, was not a Christian, but he has some tremendous insights on this subject. In one section of the book, he discusses one of the possible reasons why God told the people of Israel that they could not make any graven images. Have you ever wondered why God gave instructions to the children of Israel about not symbolizing their experiences? Listen to what Postman says, quote, It is a strange injunction to include as a part of an ethical system unless its author assumed a connection between forms of human communication and the quality of a culture. The God of the Jews was to exist in the Word and through the Word, an unprecedented conception requiring the highest order of abstract thinking. People like ourselves who are in the process of converting their culture from word-centered to image-centered might profit by reflecting on this mosaic injunction, end quote. That's a brilliant insight. You see, God is interested in communicating truth through words and concepts, but our culture tries to train us to learn only through physical images. Our culture goes to incredible lengths to communicate through images. I was amazed to hear that in one of the World Series played recently, that it took 18 hours to paint the World Series logo on the field where they were playing. 18 hours to paint the logo on the field. Our society is used to communicating and learning through things that appeal to our senses or maybe appeal to our emotions, but not our minds. By the way, that makes preaching and teaching God's Word very difficult in this day and age because people have been trained to be entertained. And so you feel this pressure to entertain, to always sort of keep the, you know, the, the static level as high as you can because you know that people have been trained to be entertained, not taught. People expose themselves to so much entertainment that it's very easy for them to tune out when you say, Please take your Bible with me and turn to whatever. Some have suggested I ought to do things like stand on my head to get people's attention and, you know, all sorts of tricks, but that's only temporary. The solution is to cause people to realize the priority of learning to think. God places great importance on the priority of thought. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus is called a preacher 11 times and a teacher 45 times. That alone ought to show the emphasis God places on truth, communicating truth, teaching. Now, of course, we know Jesus taught through metaphors. I'm not implying it's wrong to teach, you know, to use metaphors or object lessons. Jesus was a master at that. But it's easy for us to assume that Jesus was a preacher, you know, making proclamations and failed to to see that the data, the, the, the evidence, the facts show that he was a teacher. Now, just in case you're not convinced, follow along with me as I develop this further in some other passages. Go back to Romans chapter 1. <coughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 
Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Notice that. They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. This downward spiral of depravity starts back in verse 1 with the phrase, they became futile in their thoughts. And it culminates with this statement in verse 28, they didn't want to... That they didn't want to retain the knowledge of God in their mind, so God gave them over to a debased mind. Isn't that interesting? It begins with becoming futile in their thoughts, and it culminates with a debased mind. Skip over to chapter 5 of Romans, just a few pages over. <coughs> chapter 5, verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I'm sorry, we're in Romans 5. I meant to say Romans 8, verse 5. So go a little further. Romans 8, verse 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, and then the implied, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see the emphasis there. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's how serious this issue is regarding the mind, the thinking. Keep going to the right to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, past 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Well, how do they walk, Paul? In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That's three times now. Three times he emphasizes this point. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkness, the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. Again, 
This description of depravity begins in verse 17 with the phrase, they walk in the futility of their mind. So I don't know how we can get around the fact that the mind is key. Again, I don't, don't mishear what I'm saying. I, I don't want to boil the Christian life down to a, merely an intellectual exercise. That's not my point. But my point is to develop this thought in connection with our text in Philippians 4 and to show how key the mind is. In Luke 10, 27, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, I realize that he was just making a statement as a, a Jewish person would, a Hebrew person would, trying to say, you just give it all you got. So he piled in as many things as he could. But it is interesting that he does bring in the mind with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then look at what Paul said in Colossians 3. Keep turning to the right. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ, is, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So again, as he does in Romans 12 too, Paul emphasizes the key role that your mind plays in the process of spiritual growth. Peter recognized this as well. In 1 Peter 1.13 he said, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is such a, that is such a vivid picture. Gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, Peter was drawing on something from his culture where men wore these long garments. Uh, and you've seen them, these long, uh, almost like a, a skirt or something like that or a long robe. So therefore, whenever they were going to engage in any type of physical activity, whether it was wrestling or working, they would reach down and they would grab the garment and they would pull it up and tuck it through their belt so that it wouldn't be flapping around around their legs and their feet and, and wouldn't tie them up. And so that's the idea of girding up, to gird up. So Peter uses that that picture, but he says, gird up the loins of your mind. So you could, you could almost translate it, get your thought life together. Pull it together. That's what Peter's saying. Now, in light of the importance God's word places on thinking, do you see how critical it is that we think on the right things? As Paul says in Philippians 4.8, that ought to have a tremendous impact on the Music you listen to, the television you watch, the movies you rent, the movies you go to see, the books you read, the magazines you read. I, I tell you, sometimes I am literally shocked at what some Christians watch on TV or at the movies or what movies they rent. And sometimes I'm more amazed at what some Christian parents let their kids watch. One hour in Sunday school or one hour in children's ministry or in youth ministry can never undo what is done by having young people feed their minds on hours of bad television every week. In preparation for this message, I also read through the book The Home Invaders by Donald E. Wildman. He was the executive director of the National Federation for Decency. Fascinating book because in the book he demonstrates, he documents how the TV and media systematically try, not, this is not happenstance, 
systematically try to undermine biblical morals and ethics. It's a deliberate and premeditated plan. It's not chance. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said Satan is the prince of this world. Paul in Ephesians 2 called him the prince of the power of the air. He is behind so much of what goes on in society. On an average day, we are bombarded with approximately 1,500 advertisements through radio, billboards, newspapers, signs, and television. Or, you know, the, the ones that are on the side of on the Internet, on Facebook, and all over. 1,500 a day. The average American will see over 1 million TV commercials by the age of 40 and another million by the time his first Social Security check comes. When the tragic news came out a while back about a high-profile Christian leader who had been unfaithful to his wife, and the news was shocking, Bev, my wife, made the statement immediately as it came out. She said, I wonder how much TV has contributed to all the spiritual leaders who are defecting from the ministry today because of adultery. That's something to think about. Someone gave me this little poem long ago, and uh, so it's, you know, it's dated somewhat, but it still makes a powerful point. It's titled, If Jesus Came to Visit. If Jesus came to your house to spend a week or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you'd do. When you saw him coming, would you meet him at the door with arms outstretched in welcome to your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in or hide some magazines and put the Bible where they'd been? Would you turn off the radio and hope he hadn't heard and wish you hadn't uttered that last loud hasty word? Would you hide your music and put some songbooks out? Could you let Jesus walk right in or would you rush about? And I wonder if the Savior spent a week or two with you, would you go right on doing the things you always do? Would you keep right on saying the things you always say, since he knows the thoughts you're thinking, would that you change in any way? Would your personal conversation keep up its usual pace? And would you find it hard each meal to pray a table grace? Would you sing the songs you always sing and read the books you read and let him know the things on which your mind and spirit feed? Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you plan to go, or would you maybe change your plans for just a day or so? Would you be glad to have him meet your very closest friends, or would you hope they'd stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever on and on, or would you sigh with great relief when he at last was gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus Christ in person came to spend some time with you. Penetrating questions. What do you feed your mind on? Let's go back to Philippians chapter 4 to consider Paul's list there in Philippians 4. <coughs> Verse 8 says succinctly yet very powerfully, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, 
there's any virtue or if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Meditate on these things. What a tremendously practical verse to regulate our thought life. The first qualification in this list is whatever things are true. The word true means honest and reliable. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to the Father in John 17, 17 when he prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's a good starting point. Psalm 119.11, you know, says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's where it all begins. Hide God's word in your heart so you can think and meditate on it. In fact, let me just give you a little challenge. When was the last time you practiced the discipline of putting a verse of Scripture to memory? When was the last time you said, Oh, that's a really helpful verse. I'm going to memorize that one, know where the, the reference is, where it's located. I'm going to, whatever I have to do, put it on a three by five card and carry it around with me or however. When was the last time you just memorized one verse of scripture so that you would have it in your mind and in your heart? The very starting point, Paul says, think about things that are true. Nothing is more true than God's word. The second qualification is whatever things are noble. The word means what is dignified, what is worthy of respect. Learn to think lofty, virtuous thoughts rather than filling your mind with base, mundane thoughts. You see, some of the things that we can fill our minds with aren't necessarily wrong. They're just insignificant. They're just useless. So the exhortation here is to fill our minds with noble thoughts. Learn to read books with substance. Learn to listen to, to Bible teaching messages with substance. By the way, that is a, that's a great discipline to develop, especially in our fast-paced world. Listen to Bible teaching messages, Bible sermons, when you're driving alone back and forth to things or when you're doing stationary work. It's a great use of your time. It's amazing the, the education you can receive if you just use time when you're alone like that to do that. The third qualification is whatever things are just. The word means righteous or the right thing to do. It's a word that emphasizes concentrating on doing the right thing. What is it that the Lord would want us to do? Instead of setting our minds on pleasure, comfort, and recreation, set our minds on what is right to do. Now, I'm not implying, don't, don't get out of balance. I'm not implying that things that are pleasurable, comfortable, recreation, that those things are wrong. No. But it's just that we can be consumed with those thoughts. It's just so easy to live life always thinking about what we're going to do that's fun at the end of the day. What are we going to do that's fun this weekend? And everything is just revolved. Our minds are just consumed with what's going to be fun. What are we going to do? Rather than setting our minds on what is right to do. Whatever the Lord has before us at this time, at this day. The fourth qualification is whatever things are pure. This refers to things morally pure. Of course, you know this may be the most difficult of all because our society promotes sexual immorality in every possible way. So if you, if you don't work at avoiding it, if you don't work hard at avoiding it, you will get pictures pumped into your mind through all kinds 
of ads, through all kinds of, of uh, different sources. I mean, just, just be as practical as you can be. Don't read the covers of the lousy magazines that are at the checkout counter at the grocery store. I mean, it's that simple. It's that basic. It's a, you just keep that stuff out of your mind. The next qualification is whatever things are lovely. This speaks of what promotes peace, that, that which promotes loving relationships rather than conflict. A synonym might be the word winsome. In other words, think in such a way so as to develop a winsomeness, a winsome personality. Don't entertain thoughts that cause you to be harsh and critical and rough around the edges. You know, don't, don't just camp in your mind on, on where maybe somebody's done something wrong to you or somebody's hurt you or offended you. Don't think on that stuff. It'll just make you harsh and critical. And, you know, don't, don't look at all the, the bad. There's plenty of bad to look at or even the failures of people. Don't concentrate on that stuff. Our minds are supposed to be set on lovely things such as kindness, sympathy, forbearance, etc., so that we'll be winsome. This is such a practical one that the Lord gives us here because a lot of conflict that happens in relationships comes about because of what I call self-talk. And self-talk is really nothing more than a certain kind of thinking process. This happens in marriages and many other kinds of relationships. Let me illustrate it for you. One person begins to think this way. Well, I wonder what, and I'll keep this neutral, not say he or she, okay? I know this isn't the most proper grammar, so that I'm not picking on men or women. I'll say it this way. Uh, the, the person thinks, I wonder what they meant by that statement. Then rather than talking it out, an assumption is made in the thinking process, and then it goes from there to, I'll bet you that they were trying to imply such and such. Well, who do they think they are? They're not so perfect either. And off they go. And immediately there's this, this potential for conflict because of the way a person's thinking. Assumptions. It's self-talk. It's an awful habit of thinking. And far too many Christians think that way. They don't capture their thoughts. They, let, they just let their thoughts run wild and they make all these assumptions. And, and boy, they've built up this huge thing in their minds and the, and the friend or the spouse is oblivious until they get blasted by it. So you can create potential for conflict by how you think. So Paul says, think on what is lovely. The next qualification is whatever things are of good report. This relates to what is positive and constructive rather than negative and destructive. You know, there is a biblical kind of positive thinking. There is. Because of Robert Schuller years ago and The Power of Positive Thinking, his famous book, and all those that have sort of followed in his path, as Christians, we tend to just totally throw out the idea of positive thinking. We think it's just liberal Christianity. But there is a biblical kind of positive thinking. It's not healthy to go around thinking negative thoughts all the time because that's destructive. It's not healthy to take in all the stuff that is even called news because much of what is called news isn't news anyway. It's entertainment in the sense that it is designed to hold the attention of the audience. Whatever is the most shocking, whatever is the most grotesque, whatever is the most lewd, the most immoral, 
And the fact is, some people, even Christians, seem to have a nose for the base things of life. They seem to know everything about all the scandals and the bad things people do in life. I mean, they can tell you every star in Hollywood who's committed adultery and everyone who's left their spouse. Why do you need to know all that stuff? There's nothing productive about that. So they know about all the scandals, all the wrong things that people do in life. They, they, they sit and watch what they call news, but it's not news. It's just designed for ratings. And as a result, they're suspicious. They always assume the worst of people. They have sort of a jaded outlook because they think this is what is norm, the norm. Well, it is the norm in many circles, unfortunately. But Paul is saying here, listen, don't let your mind dwell on those kinds of negative things. Instead, he says, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You see, your mind will always think on something. You can let other people and other influences feed your mind what to think about, or you can determine that you will control what your mind thinks about. The point is this, if you're going to think right, you have to make a conscious effort to make yourself think right. Because there are plenty of avenues out there to grab your mind. Barclay writes this, quote, this is something of the utmost importance because it is a law of life that if a man thinks of something often enough, he will come to the stage when he cannot stop thinking about it. His thoughts will be quite literally in a groove out of which he cannot jerk them. It is therefore of the first importance that a man should set his thoughts upon the fine things. And here Paul makes a list of them. End quote. He's right. That's why in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, Paul tells us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. Every thought. You know, some Christians would never allow themselves to think thoughts of sexual immorality. They say, oh, that's wrong. That's off base. I can't let my mind go there. But they allow themselves to think about grudges and resentment they have toward people in their lives. And they don't see that those kinds of thoughts are just as wrong, just as damaging, just as destructive. Paul says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Not just every thought about sexual immorality, every thought. Because you, you are what you think. Can I give you a really practical assignment? Some homework? Write this verse out on a piece of paper, a three by five card, and put it, you know, on the dash of your car, somewhere on the visor. Put it, put it up next to your TV or you know, whatever you watch with a pad or whatever you listen to, just here's the point. Before you willfully allow any thought to be embraced in your mind, make sure it passes the test of Philippians 4.8. If you do, then I'll promise you that you'll be able to do what Paul says in verse 1 of this fourth chapter when he says, stand fast in the Lord. And let me tell you something that I'm sure you already know, and this is preaching to the choir, but I'm going to say it anyway, that it is harder, it is more difficult right now, today, than any time in human history 
This is not an exaggeration. This is not an overstatement. It is more difficult today than in any other time in all of human history to do what Philippians 4.8 says. Because there are way more avenues into your mind. Way more than there have ever been. Some Christians will sometimes say, well, you know, why is it so important? You know, you, sometimes you, you spiritual leaders are always saying, be in the Word daily, memorize Scripture. Well, you know, did, did the first century Christian, some of them didn't even have their Bibles. They, they didn't even have a copy of the Bible. They couldn't read it during the week. The only time they could do it, read it was on the weekend. But yet you're telling us, read our Bible all the time. What's the deal here? I'll tell you what the deal is, is this. You're right, many first century Christians didn't have a Bible. They couldn't read it. The only time they heard it was on the weekend. But they didn't have everything else bombarding their mind through the week that you have bombarding your mind through the week. You have stuff bombarding you every day of the week. And the only way you counter that is by the truth of God's Word. So it's a different day. It's a different age. A different battle. Or the same battle, but just intensified. So if you're going to obey Philippians 4.8, you are really going to have to work at it. Harder than any Christian in any century has ever had to work at it. Because that's the day and age in which we live. But that's the call on our lives to live Philippians 4 8. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the practicality of your word that though it was written some 2,000 years ago, it speaks very clearly to us today. And in some ways, a verse like this, even more pointed or poignant than, than uh, it may have been to Christians in the past who didn't have so many things coming at them and bombarding their minds and, and grabbing for their attention and, and trying to, uh, to lodge in their thoughts. But that's the day and age in which we live. All around us, everywhere, we have, we have these avenues into our minds that we must, we must do as Paul said, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So teach us, equip us, enable us to live that way for the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.